Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Capitalism seems to be in a sort of constant crisis, leaving many struggling to make ends meet. This desperation was intensified in 2008, and for many, never went away in spite of claims of a general economic recovery. More recently, the tensions and shortcomings of our current socioeconomic system have been exacerbated by the COVID crisis, with poorly compensated frontline workers struggling to to stay safe in workplaces that have failed to take adequate care of their health and safety. The feeling that that we're stuck riding along the precipice of disaster for years now is an animating idea for my guest today, Albana Esmanova, here to discuss her recent book, Capitalism on Edge, How Fighting Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia, from Columbia University Press in 2020. The book argues that the animating element of contemporary life under capitalism is precarity, and the driving force behind this precarity is the insatiable drive for profits, which leaves workers desperately trying to keep up with capital. Synthesizing history, philosophy, economics, and policy analysis, the book takes a sharp look at the elements that make up our current situation and what are possible for change actually are. Albana Asmanova is an associate professor of political and social theory at Kent's Brussels School of International Studies and is also the author of The Scandal of Reason, a critical theory of political judgment. So Albana Asmanova, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. Very pleased to be uh, in your company and giving this talk. Right. So we always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning. So could you tell us a bit about who you are and what your research tends to focus on? Um, Okay, what can I disclose about myself? Um, I was born and bred under communism in my native Bulgaria. So when I was a a student, uh, I joined the dissident movement and we we fought the dictatorship. Um, And it is back then when... um, I've embraced the idea that neither socialism nor communism is the answer, that we need not to even try to combine them um, as we, you know, the, the, the tendency tends to be, but to, to seek a radical alternative to both. So this has been my research in recent years. I've done work on judgment and justice, but uh, about 15 years ago, I moved on to the critique of capitalism um, and I've been trying to, to stay the course, uh, applying that critique to ca- of capitalism to many, um, you know, a variety of phenomena. Excellent. So to kick things off, early in this book, you give a few different responses to what are often referred to as the crises of capitalism. Broadly speaking, the right wants to stabilize capitalism the left wants to overthrow it, and in the middle are people who want to reform it. You opt for a fourth option, overcoming capitalism by subverting it. So obviously we're going to kind of fill this in in greater detail as we work through the book, but can you maybe give listeners a preliminary sense of what you mean by this overcoming via subversion? Um, yes, yeah, so uh, subversion means trans. <laughs> transcending the current form of society we have away from capitalism, but from within, without a revolutionary break. Because see, there, as you said, indeed, there are um, suddenly three attitudes towards um, capitalism since all of a sudden became fashionable to talk about the crisis of capitalism. Um, on, the, on the far right, uh, there is this talk about protect our national capitalism against global capitalism. Then the center right and the center left, both, they want to humanize capitalism with a dose of redistribution, uh, hence the fashionable talk now uh, that we need to diminish inequality and to break the monopolies of big tech, uh, as if that is going to change much. We can talk about that. And then the radical left, 
which uh, or or at least the simplified facile uh, Marxism of the radical left is is the, the narrative that we can we should end capitalism by nationalization of the private property of the means of production. Um, there is a, a more humble version of that in circulation: worker ownership of companies, inclusion of workers in the management boards of companies. Um, what I'm saying in the book is that. None of this would make much difference, in fact, not even the radical life strategy. Um, the more we involve workers in the running of their companies, the more workers actually identify with the push for profit making in the global economy. So uh, at best, this can take us into a version of China. Uh, that is autocratic uh, form of capitalism and uh, what comes with that, like self-exploitation, destruction of nature. But um, so my message is that, in fact, we are staying at a very peculiar point in history, um, at least in the history of Western liberal democracies, that we have a way out, what I describe as subverting capitalism from within, without a revolutionary break, eliminating its main logic, the competitive production of profit, but as, you know, the readers would see, for this, we do not even need to eliminate the private property of the means of production. So indeed, to me, this is a distinct fourth way of dealing with capitalism. To describe our current moment, you borrow Jacques Derrida's phrase saying that we're in a crisis of crisis. Can you unpack what you mean by this and how it describes many of the contemporary debates around capitalism and inequality? Uh, right. So uh, capitalism had disappeared from our language in the, in, in the dawn of the 21st century talk of capitalism had vanished. Suddenly there is the financial crisis of 2008 and then everybody's talking about the crisis of capitalism. Even the Financial Times ran a series, it was in uh, spring 2010, called Capitalism in Crisis. But in fact, in the course of this decade that followed, in the Great Recession, Capitalism got back into its usual business of growth, of economic growth, of creating prosperity. And yet, the sense that something was amiss, something was wrong with the way capitalism was functioning remained. In a, in a, a sort, sort of a uh, society entered a, a state of permanent inflammation, permanent um, discomfort. Uh, although capitalism was uh, back uh, to its normal functioning, uh, as an, at least uh, in economic terms. Um, so we, we, we seem to be stuck in a condition of, 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 of permanent low inflammation, social inflammation of, of some sort of a, a disease um, uh, that we were neither healing from, um, you know, nor we were dying of. Uh, so I borrowed the term, uh, indeed, of Jacques Derrida, uh, crisis of crisis, to, to speak about that state. In more recent writing, I'm calling this a meta-crisis, because there is a crisis of the crisis, so it's a meta-crisis of capitalism. Uh, see, if an entity is in a crisis, it faces three choices. Either it goes back to its, you know, it heals itself, it dies, so that's option two, or it transforms itself radically, but none of these options materialized. Um, so we continue to be in this condition of, of being stuck in, in discontent, in displeasure, something's wrong, and yet... Um, we're not getting it right. So this is what I call a crisis of crisis or a meta-crisis. Now, the, curiously, um, the discourse about inequality, which is like the, the discourse of injustice of our times, is one of the reasons for being in a, in a state of crisis of crisis. 
the unfairness of inequality has become the dominant frame of social protest, right? Uh, especially since the Occupy movement proudly stated we are the 99%, and that was back in 2011. But this indignation against a thoroughly rigged system was subsequently reframed by powerful voices, including um, Nobel winners of Nobel Prizes, uh, including the pre President Obama, as a protest against economic inequality. But see, remonstrations against inequality present the matter of capitalism's numerous and grave failures as issues that can be tackled with a dose of redistributive policies and strengthened oversight. So tax the rich calls, which have become sort of a celebrity politics and the crying, uh, the, the rallying cry of the left, but also you can hear that much uh, on the center right, unwittingly glorify the system that generates wealth that is to be taxed and distributed, a process which, as the inclusive prosperity of the post-World War II welfare state made clear, had absolutely wrecked our natural environment uh, and had created this consumer society uh, with, with um, all of, of the evils that we are well familiar with. So that's what appears to be a radical challenge to the system. I'm talking about these calls for ending inequality. Um, often reinforce it as we inevitably validate, glorify the model of life within which we seek inclusion and inequality. This is what I call in the book the paradox of emancipation. So this is um, what, I'm, what, what I want to say is that even in the most radical fights for um, justice, well, uh, the, the fighting the injustice of inequality, we in fact fuel the crisis of um, of the crisis of capitalism. We maintain um, kind of capitalism in a zombie state. Yeah, so this book is largely a work of history, but you do have some theoretical frameworks worth discussing, if only to briefly develop your own orientation here. So to begin, you note that there's a distinction to be made between systemic and structural dimensions of capitalism, and that you'll be focusing on the former. So can you unpack what you mean by this distinction and how it allows you to clarify your own approach? Uh, yes. Uh, so theoretically, what I do is, in fact, return to the original model of the uh, Frankfurt School of Social Criticism. Uh, the way it was conceived uh, as a critique of, of capitalism uh, by people like uh, Adorno, Marcuse, Horkheimer. Um, they proposed to perform an internal critique of, of capitalist society, basically what Marx was doing. Um, and they had declared an interest in the political economy of capitalism, which helped them to produce a very powerful analysis of consumer society. Um, however, they did not do much more than that. Um, they were not political economists, or at least you know, most of them, they are philosophers, sociologists. Um, they did not do a very engaged critique of the political economy of capitalism uh, of the sort that Marx had done. They also reached a very negativistic conclusion that people have uh, bought into capitalism to such an extent that they were so alienated and blind to their unhappiness that there was no way out. And this comes Habermas, you know, the, the leading figure of the second generation of the Frankfurt School, and he introduced two adjustments. He replaced the principle of imminent critique with a dose of ideal theory, the idea of communicative rationality, deliberative democracy, so that with its great emancipation potential um, that we can, if we deliberate under the right conditions, we can find a way out of our predicament. Um, and his second adjustment was that while for Marx, capitalism was a whole system of social relations, for Habermas, capitalism was reduced to a market economy, 
And then the democratic state as a distinct structural sphere, right, then could be freed from the impact of capitalism, of a capitalist economy, and can do a lot of great work. So democracy can be this um, engine of emancipation. So I will not tell you what I find wrong with this turn of critical theory. Uh, I I, uh, did that in my book, The Scandal of Reason. But here I propose just an alternative theoretical um, take, a theoretical framework. Uh, I take the original project of the Frankfurt School in order to dissect capitalism in the 21st century. So what I bring back from Marx is an understanding of capitalism as a form of society, not just a form of economy, as a social order. And in Marx, there are these, in fact, two dimensions in the functioning of the political economy. Uh, The first one is around property relations, the ownership of the means of production with the attendant issues of exploitation and the class conflict between the capital owners and wage labor. So uh, this is what I call the structural dimension of injustice. Um, It is caused by an institution, the institution of the private property, of the private ownership of the means of production, which has a certain structuring effect. So this is the structural dimension of injustice or of domination. But Marx also has um, the dimension of um, the the profit motive, right? What he describes as the profit motive, uh, the competitive pursuit of profit. At the time of Marx in 19th century Western Europe, um, this dimension of of competition, of competition for profit, was less pronounced as it is nowadays. So in Marx's writing, um, there is not much attention to that. The the main focus is on forms of property, exploitation, um, linked to the ownership of the means of production. But in our contemporary capitalism, exactly because the the structure of the private property ha- is, 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 has become so complex. Forms of uh, property uh, ownership and of um, professional tenure have become so complex in, and, and so diverse that uh, attention, I think, needs to shift towards the competitive production of profit because as the forms of ownership and job tenure have become so uh, diffused and and complicated, um, we are all exposed to the competitive production of profits. So this is really the source of the problem. And I focus my analysis on this trajectory of uh, the functioning of capitalist society. uh, And I call that the... the, um, Sorry, uh, I, I call that, uh, so not the structural, but the systemic dimension of domination and injustice. And then all of these, these dynamics uh, create a, a third dimension. Then this is the distributive dimension, which is the most visible uh, issues of inequality and, in, and uh, exclusion. But um, so my, my, my project is, I'm saying emancipatory critique needs to address all these three dimensions of domination. But really radical critique and radical social criticism is about the third dimension, the systemic dimension. Without that, we would not have a radical politics. Yeah, moving along, another theme you bring up is on the nature of politicization. You talk about how a certain ethos or what Weber might call spirits of a certain society render certain complaints or actions valid or worth bringing up for political debate. So can you unpack what you mean here and how it informs your analysis? Right. Thanks. Thank you for uh, asking me this, because this is the one point on which I deviate uh, from Marx and from the first generation of Frankfurt School authors. Um, this is my take on ideology, on the ide- actually on the ideational aspect of social existence. 
which I they, they used to um, think about that in terms of false consciousness, right? Um, what I do is I I position my analysis more towards a constructivist and a Weberian sense um, of of a shared ethos of worldviews that actors share uh, that orient their behavior, notions of normality of what's normal, what's desirable through which we make sense of the world. Um, so on that basis, uh, what uh, a central category for me of, uh, is what people consider relevant. Because this is where, where their attention and, and their uh, struggles for justice focus. I call that a framework of political uh, reference. Um, what are our politically salient social concerns? Because not all social problems become politicized, become um, drawn into the attention of political action. Uh, some of those concerns might for, be taken for granted. Um, for instance, for a long time, slavery was not questioned. Or for a long time, um, you know, gender injustice, uh, the inequality uh, between the sexes uh, was not questioned. So the question, the issue is, when does a social injustice become a political concern? This is what I mean by politicization. And then this kind of thinking um, I, I frame in terms of uh, concepts like a legitimation matrix. So what are our shared views regarding uh, what is a desired um, life chance in society. What what is considered a successful life in a society? What is the fair distribution of life chances? Um, for instance, why do we talk about inequality? Does that talk mean that suddenly uh, the majority of people or a great uh, majority of people consider that the equal distrib distribution of wealth is what is considered normal for our societies. Um, and, and then there's another notion I um, use, the legitimacy deal, which is a, a narrower concept than the legitimation matrix. Uh, the legitimacy deal is simply what are considered political deliverables that we deem that public authority can deliver and should deliver. For instance, why a social safety became... Um, an issue at some point that a lot of people still consider it is desirable, but somehow he started thinking about, about social safety as unable, as, as unreachable, that the, uh, in the context of global competition, the state could no longer provide it because it supposedly didn't have any more the financial means to ensure a robust safety net. So moving from ideology to ethos, to the spirit of, of capitalism, allows me to think about those political deliverables and, and what stays in the blind spot of uh, public attention, uh, what um, concerns with justice actually we're overlooking by um, putting the, the spotlight on s some other things, for instance, like inequality, if we are uh, so fixated on inequality, what we might be overlooking. Finally, you talk about different forms of domination, relational, systemic, and structural. And you do this because you see critiques of domination often misrecognize the sort of critique they're actually trying to make and end up missing the mark in various ways. So can you unpack this a bit and clarify how you're book here fits in terms of these different sorts of domination it's trying to address. Right. So I, I briefly describe these three types of domination. Um, and most often, grievances of suffered injustice concern the asymmetrical distribution of power among individuals and groups, leading to inequality and exclusion. Uh, this is what is most easily visible in our society. So the typical remedy for such harm, 
which I call relational injustice, are policies of inclusion and equalization, such as political representation, economic redistribution, cultural recognition. However, such struggles for justice not only often fail to question the system within which equality and inclusion are being sought, but might further increase the value of an unjust system by force of demanding access to it and equality within it. This is what I call the paradox of emancipation. So how to avoid that trap? We need to ask by force of what institutions the inequality and exclusion emerge. This is what I call structural domination. In capitalism, this is the structure of the private ownership uh, that allows the exploitation of labor. Uh, The structure of the patriarchy allowed the division of labor according to gendered social roles, so that created the uh, gender injustice. But yet there is another dimension that creates uh, injustice for all participants, for the winners and the losers. And this is the injustice produced at the level of social system by force of the very constitutive, the main constitutive dynamic of that system. Um, not of the structuring institutions. It is not a matter of the uh, unequal distribution of privilege. In capitalism, this is the competitive production of profit. This is systemic domination. Turning from theory to history, you look at broader trends in political opinion and electoral politics, particularly at the way in which certain political divides and consensus maintained a certain socioeconomic order and have given way to a new consensus that emphasizes free markets and the main political antagonisms have been shifted to cultural issues. Can you explain the history of these shifts? Oh, this, uh, I think readers should buy the book <laughs> for the history of these shifts. What I would like to clarify is uh, that since the inception, uh, since the left and the right became the main lines of, of aggregation of preferences and the main lines in which um, the ideological battles are led. Um, the left and the right are, structure, are structuring their um, ideological identities along two vectors, uh, economic and cultural. So it's about how we see the economics and how we see the culture, the cultural divides. On the left, typically, uh, we had, uh, and I say had uh, deliberately because I don't think it's no longer the case. I don't think it's the case anymore. So on the left, we used to have state regulation of the economy and liberal values, such as equality, inclusion, cultural recognition, Uh, gender uh, justice. So on the right, we had free market and traditional values. Um, You know, religion, you know, the value of the family. But that no longer holds. Public concerns, at least, are not aggregated in this way. The economic divide, the, the prevalent economic divide nowadays, is not about how much state intervention in the economy we should have. The economic divide is about how much market openness we should have, how much national economy should be open to the global economy. So the divide is national free markets, but how how open they are. So on the on the one side we have calls for insulating our national capitalism against global capitalism or opening up uh, and embracing this neoliberal globalization. On the cultural front, uh, the divide is no longer traditional versus liberal values, but cosmopolitan culture versus localism, versus cultural, political, etc., sovereignty. Now, what is kind of negatively called populism, uh, and I don't like that label at all. I think we are mislabeling uh, these protests by calling them populist, but that's that's another question. So 
let's go with that uh, term, populism is mobilizing along four points that do not pertain neatly to either the left nor to the right agenda, as we know them. And those four points are fear of cultural estrangement, political disorder, economic insecurity, and physical danger. So we have the political, the economic, the physical, and the cultural components. So what populist mobilizations usually demand are they want free domestic markets, so free market capitalism, but closed economies, social protection, Kirby migration, especially from Muslim countries, which are seen uh, 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 as the Muslim uh, people are seen to be endangering our liberal values. So to make sense of all this new ideological map, uh, we need to replace the labels or, or to, to, to replace the left-right orientation with what I call opportunity versus risk. So why opportunity versus risk? Uh, I think that um, what the, the aggregation of, of preferences follows attitudes to the way globalization is affecting us. So either as uh, uh, we reap the benefits of this new economy of open borders and technological innovation, or this reality is threatening to us. If we feel threatened, we mobilize around the risk pole. If we feel um, privileged by, by these developments in the global economy, we mobilize around the opportunity pole. So the center-left, the center-right, and the Green parties typically mobilize, and, and their supporters typically mobilize around an opportunity pole, everybody, uh, everybody else around the risk pole. Yeah, jumping right off of some of those kind of ideological changes, you argue that within this new ideological constellation, there's been a lot of analysis on those who have benefited from the last several decades of deregulation and against those who've suffered, or to put it more bluntly, the winners and losers of globalization. This has created a number of new voting blocks with some kind of weird contradictions like the hipster right or a working Mm. class that often votes against economic regulation and safety nets. Mm. These are various responses to this kind of new set of political debates around what you call the cosmopolitanism versus nationalism dichotomy. But Mm. one of the most important things you say about this is, quote, what is most disconcerting about the new ideological geography of the West is that it leaves no space for utopia, for an overarching project, spelling out available opportunities for a better future for all, end quote. Can you unpack this change for us and how it speaks to this crisis of crisis we discussed earlier? Right, very well. So indeed, you mentioned the hipster right and and the working class conservatism. Uh, These are exactly the very good examples of of the risk pole that cannot be easily defined uh, through the left-right dichotomy. You if with 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 this new map of ideological divisions, indeed there is no place for utopia on this map. Uh, what is utopia? To be vi- utopia is is the idea of the good, happy society. To be viable, any utopia needs to be inclusive. It needs to uh, be utopia. Uh, the place, uh, the good life, to describe the good life for everybody. Um, for all people. On the left, we used to have communism, like we, this uh, solidaristic society. Uh, on the right, we used to have uh, uh, a happy life based on the idealization of tradition, the good old times of sound Christian piety. And suddenly, we currently, what we have, uh, all of that is gone. The winners they of, of globalization, they glorify globalization because they can profit from it, but that is at the expense of the losers. The losers, they hate globalization because they feel threatened from it, but they are not embracing any new vision of a happy society. What happens with the socialist utopia in this context? Uh, well, um, it is true that socialism is becoming more and more um, 
fashionable uh, among uh, the young uh, young people but it has been discredited by the experimentations with totalitarianism in eastern europe so it is not a banner uh, that can unite um, big masses uh, and and promise um, you know it, it is not a plausible utopia anymore because of this unfortunate hide because it has been hijacked by those totalitarian regimes in eastern europe uh, and they gave it a bad name so what happens is that the combination of economic crisis and lack of utopia it is a toxic combination it makes people conservative because of this fear of free- freedom um, syndrome. They, uh, when people's lives are destabilized, they don't have a desire for bold experimentation. But exactly because they have all these conservative instincts uh, to, to, to seek stability in times of crisis. And yet there is a lack of utopia, of a, of a clear um, direction of exit we have this um, situation I describe as a meta-crisis or crisis of crisis. So at exactly at the point when we most need to exit um, our conundrum, uh, this permanent crisis of capitalism, we don't have the means or the will you know, to exit it. So this is why we're so stuck in this meta-crisis. There is discontent for sure, but there is no clear exit from the situation. And the democratic vo- uh, vote, if you remember, at the Nadir, at the, the lowest point of the economic crisis, the democratic vote went to the far right and, uh, and the center right. It did not go to the left. In order to understand how we got to our current moment, you tell a history of capitalism composed of four main states, the one we're living in now being called precarity capitalism. So before we discuss that in some detail, can you give us a quick synopsis of these first three phases of liberal welfare and neoliberal capitalism? Um, Maybe just kind of Mm -hmm. the key elements that define them. Uh, So in order to describe the current form of society, which I believe we entered into that form at the very early 21st century before the uh, financial crisis hit. So about 10 years before that crisis. Uh, I described the previous three forms of capitalism and they're marked uh, by the way, one of the features, one of uh, uh, they're marked by a few things, but uh, let me focus on just two characteristics. The one concerns state-society relations, so what is expected from public authority to do for society. And the other is about the way people are motivated to participate in this form of capitalism. So take the 19th century uh, liberal or entrepreneurial capitalism. It purported to ensure the autonomy of the individual of the enterprising individual in the modus uh, that I have called the teenage state. Uh, Young, uh, I mean, in historical terms, entrepreneurs could reap all the rewards uh, uh, of of their efforts of of risk-taking because um, they were on their own taking risks. So what the state had to do at that time is just through uh, legal regulation to ensure a level playing field uh, so we have all the paraphernalia of uh, the rule of law, uh, uh, contract um, protection of private property in order to ensure that entrepreneurial activity of the young interpreters. That's why I call it the teenage state. The motivation to participate uh, or the ethos of capitalism at that time was some sort of a glorification of work and entrepreneurship. So the belief that the, if you if you seriously make an effort, you will reap, and if you take a risk, then you will reap the benefits of that effort. The second form, uh, the welfare capitalism or the regulated uh, capitalism, um, became dominant after uh, the Second World War. The um, 
the, that the format of the state is the nanny, what became known as the nanny state. So the poorly remunerated but devoted nanny would nurture the economy. Uh, it would be pampering uh, both entrepreneurs and workers. And with that, uh, rekindle faith in the capacity of capitalism to deliver, to deliver prosperity for all. However, as the economic engine of capitalism experienced difficulties in the 1970s and could no longer deliver the promised prosperity, an alternative formula emerged, and that uh, which became known as neoliberal capitalism. So during this third format of capitalism, uh, the state-society relations are different. They are rebuilt on the seemingly empowering notion of individual self-reliance in chasing exa- uh, exciting opportunities, what uh, Luc Boltanski and Chiapello called the new spirit of capitalism. So this is some sort of a sexy capitalism cap- or capitalism with a sex appeal that seduces everybody with, with, with proliferation of opportunities uh, for enrichment and for freedom. Um, here, the nanny state of welfare capitalism uh, uh, is replaced by what I call the stepmother state of the neoliberal 80s and 90s, a state that used its authority and institutional means to enforce personal self-reliance um, rather than simply make room for it as in liberal capitalism. Yeah, so this so that is my brief story. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sexy stepmom capitalism is a new one or a new way I've heard of describing that. Um, So that history brings us up to what you call precarity capitalism. Um, And you actually argue, as you just said, that this began well before the 2007 financial Mm -hmm. collapse and can instead be traced to policies developed as far back as the 90s. One of the keys for understanding this current phase is the way opportunities and risks are distributed. And you've alluded to this a bit earlier, but can you unpack it a bit more and how it is kind of maybe the defining or core feature of contemporary capitalism? Right. So what happened towards the end of the uh, 20th century, uh, still under neoliberal capitalism, is that as, as the state started to withdraw uh, and and rather um, to leave the market to do more of the work, um, competition increased. And that remember the the 80s is the time uh, when uh, the third wave of globalization happened, when we created the global integrated capitalism. But as national economies opened more and more towards uh, this you know global flow of capitalism. The, the new um, uh, per policy priority became to maintain the competitiveness of national economies in the global market. So there was a, a subtle shift from competition to competitiveness. So what the state took on itself to do, or public authorities on themselves to do, is to privilege, to help companies which already had a competitive advantage in the global economy, big tech, for instance. Um, So if the state actively starts to pamper uh, through uh, sweet uh, tax deals, um, for instance, uh, to pamper uh, the big players. And this is an unusual development because usually the state either um, you know, does not interfere in, in, in the functioning of capitalism or it compensates the weak. Currently, it actually privileges the strong. So the state-society relation is um, changed in, in, in this way that the state uses its uh, capacity to intervene in order to help already the, the strong. That's why I call that um, the rich uncle um, state. Um, But as a result of this, rather than trying to balance uh, the opportunities and the risks, you know, usually capitalism kind of justifies itself by saying uh, those who take most risk 
and make a biggest effort, they will be rewarded through more opportunity. But actually, in the current context, the state actively aggregates the opportunities towards the strongest and dumps risks on society. So it actively distributes uh, resources from the weak economic actors to the powerful ones who already have a competitive advantage in the global economy. And this is justified because supposedly this is helping the national uh, economies to stay competitive in the globally uh, integrated market. Um, The other feature of this uh, new form of capitalism is that it is no longer sexy. It is completely um, motivated by fear, not by chasing uh, attractive opportunities. So to to expand this tired family metaphor, I've called uh, the rich uncle state. Since this uncle actively supports the most gifted among the siblings for the sake of the security of the family business. The bright niece has all the opportunities at a minimum risk because the state is backing her. The rest of the family stay in the game out of fear, which has become the main motivational resource or the spirit of of precarity capitalism. One of the reasons this stage of capitalism is so entrenched at this point is because there have not been sufficient challenges to its legitimacy. While there have been various protests against various symptoms and political movements that claim to be mounting a challenge to the status quo, they generally tend to miss the mark and fail to seriously challenge the core issues you've been describing. And you alluded Mm -hmm. to this a bit, but now I think you can kind of flesh out a bit more what you mean by this. How do these various protest movements kind of fail to get to the heart of our contemporary problems? This is is in fact very important because the, the, I mean, if if we cannot count on social process, uh, protests to, to get us out of, uh, our misery, uh, then we're in real trouble. Um, let's take uh, one typical slogan uh, of the Spanish indignados. Uh, these were the young, mostly young people who, you know, protested in uh, 2011 uh, against austerity policy. And one of their slogans was, "We're not against the system; the system is against us." See, uh, this is a plea. Uh, you know, begging for inclusion into the system. It is there is nothing radical about that. Or um, let's take again uh, the the call for um, the call against inequality. So what what's wrong with that? Because it it, it is actually the rallying cry of, of progressive forces nowadays. That. Um, when we when we reason about inequality, we engage a logic uh, of comparison between individuals and groups. We present the idea of social justice in individualistic terms, which altogether eliminates the collectivist uh, notion of well-being that has been fundamental for socialism as a political project since its inception. Now, significantly, a privately affluent society, egalitarian or not, can be publicly poor if affluence is seen as a matter of the personal wealth of individuals rather than the collective well-being of society. And I think that the pandemic actually is making this pretty clear nowadays. The focus on inequality might sound like a radical stance, but actually it is a rather a conservative position It maintains this individualistic logic typical of neoliberalism. We are focused on the economic situation of individuals and groups rather than on the commons, on the public welfare. So this kind of protest that uh, is focused on inequality, uh, only on inequality, I'm not saying that inequality is not a problem, but if we are fixating on inequality, in fact, helps maintain neoliberalism despite the purported crisis of capitalism. Now, let me clarify one more thing, um, if I may. This obsession with inequality, I know that uh, I'm very 
contrarian when I'm saying these things, but I, I think it's a, there is an important message there. So our obsession with inequality is strange for three reasons. First, ordinary people don't seem to care. This narrative comes from academics, politicians, and pundits. Second, capitalist societies have always been unequal. So inequality was never an issue. The, the interesting question is why now? And third, traditionally, the radical left has not uh, aspired for uh, equality. Remember Marx, under communism, the uh, principle would be to each according to their needs. This is not equality. So my initial kind of, I don't know, uneasiness with all that uh, was that Western societies were suffering from a malaise, from a disease that had no name, that uh, I was listening to all this talk about equality and I was thinking that while the world is in such deep trouble from insecure jobs, destruction of the environment, destruction of the commons, and we see that the the, the pandemic is as a result of this diminished healthcare capacity, destruction of the commons, I was having the sense that the concerns with inequality was in fact expressing with old terms, familiar terms, easily available terms, another social harm, an affliction for which we did not have language. Uh, But labeling this condition inequality is making us pass the wrong diagnosis of the current conundrum. And that's very dangerous if we mislabel uh, the, the the problem. So I started researching in this uh, this disease, this affliction, and what I found was what I uh, ended up calling generalized precarity uh, in the book. Yeah, jumping right off of that, um, one of the key trends that you uh, develop um is an increase in precarity in people's lives, but also kind of their jobs. So everyone, including Mm -hmm. nurses, professors, and programmers, are starting to find themselves precariously employed, either in part-time employment or with short-term contracts, or in some other situation where a stable future is no longer guaranteed. And alongside this is a... um, what you call the decommodification potential, uh, the shrinking of the parts of our lives that aren't subject to market logic. So can you kind of unpack Mm -hmm. some of the labor or work trends that you see in the sort of lives Mm -hmm. for most that most people are starting to experience as a result of that? Right. So this massive precarity, uh, first, let me clarify a little bit this term. Um, This, term was first um, introduced or became popular, let's say, uh, with Judith Butler's in, in her book, Precarious Life, The Powers of Mourning and Violence. Um, I believe it was, it came out about uh, 2004, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and there, Judith Butler draws the distinction between precariousness as a general human condition of vulnerability rooted in our interdependence on each other, and precarity, like the French precarité, which is socially generated vulnerability, resulting from social marginalization, poverty, economic insecurity, political disenfranchisement, and or violence. So basically the losers only are suffering from precarity. A distinctive feature of precarity in her account is this unequal distribution. It afflicts some groups. On that basis, um, you know, the the wonderful um, thinker Guy Guy Standing uh, speaks of a precarious class, a precariat, akin to the proletariat. I use the term differently. I speak of a generalized condition of precarity, Um, afflicting the 99%. So my claim is that precarity is not only a matter of impoverishment. It is a general social condition of of insecurity, of fear of of losing your job, even if you are on a good job, but your your fear, you're plausibly um, fearing 
losing your source of livelihood, you live already uh, in in a condition of perceived precarity. So it is indeed afflicting all rich and poor men and women, well-educated and low-skilled, and it it afflicts everybody irrespectively even of employment status. Uh, those people who we, you know, the millionaires with the good jobs uh, in the IT, we uh, all envy their all a lot of them are facing uh, precarious lives uh, because of this anticipation of job loss or of, of uh, impossible uh, pressures at work. Um, so I came to think that precarity as a condition of existence without predictability or security affecting the material or the psychological welfare is afflicting the 99%, so also the rich. This is a matter of uh, systemic injustice. This is the real grievance, I claim, not inequality. And this is rooted in the two... Um, in the two what I describe as the two um, contradictions of contemporary capitalism. You, uh, you, you asked about that. Um, so, um, just let me get some water and um, get back to this, the contradictions of contemporary capitalism, because this is something that is very typical of our times. So, if you look at the contemporary economy, what we see is that uh, there is a tension between two opposing tendencies. On the one hand, there is an unprecedented emancipatory potential of the global economy. Hello? Hello? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Yeah, you still have to go. uh, Let me get to the two contradictions of capitalism that are creating this massive generalized precarity that uh, everybody suffers from it. So, on the one hand, there is the promise of the new technology. Because of the unprecedented technological development, um, we find ourselves, we are. Uh, probably humanity is for the first time able to produce its existence without much input of labor. Automation is a way of of unplugging all of us uh, from from the treadmill. So this is what I call the decommodification potential of our economies. There is also a shared desire, uh, a widespread desire of people to spend less time working and more time with either families or leisure, culture, me time. So this is on the one hand. But on the, on the other hand, pressures to focus one's effort on remaining employed and employable have also increased, especially because job security has decreased. So this gives gives rise to two internal contradictions of uh, our form of capitalism. I call the first surplus employability. So that's the simultaneous increase of the decommodification potential of modern societies because of automation and the increase of commodification pressure. So the pressure to get a job, find a job, keep the job. And then there is the second contradiction that is the acute job dependency. So there is less and less good jobs because of automation, but there is an increased reliance on a good job as a source of livelihood. Why? Because um, the, 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 the state in contemporary capitalism uh, has made it its business to take care of the economy, but not to provide a safety net. So having a job is becoming the only so- a source of livelihood for the majority of people. And yet, there are not enough jobs. So we are stuck with these two contradictions of capitalism, which create massive pressures on everybody, on those who don't have a job, 
and uh, like 20% of there is 20% youth unemployment in Spain. So the those the young who are getting on the labor market and cannot get a job are uh, suffering from that. Those who are trapped in the always on economy and suffering from mental health disorders are suffering from this. People who are m- m- uh, managing three to five uh, precarious jobs or, or, or working on the margin of the labor market are also suffering from that. So it, uh, in this sense, I'm saying that precarity is uh, afflicting the 99%. It is not inequality we should be worried about. Yeah, so that kind of brings us close to the end of your book. Um, But towards the end, you start developing some ways we can kind of try and rein this in. And you offer a number of different ideas. But at the core, um, what I see as the core of your response, you write, quote, above all, we need to and can target systemic domination via practices that oppose Mm -hmm. the competitive production of profit. Mm This is the proper object of radical revolutionary practice. In other words, what is at the root of much of the suffering related to impoverishment, reckless management of the economy, political corruption, and environmental degradation is the competitive production of profit, end quote. So we've developed a lot of how the ceaseless drive for profit has created a precarious situation for most. But in closing, can you unpack how we aim for and try to develop a less competitive economy? How do we start restructuring our world and pushing for policies that will rein this ceaseless competitiveness in a bit? Right. Uh, So two two things um, that can uh, move us ahead. Um, Notice that, in fact, the purported class enemies, the winners and losers of globalization, in fact, share a common grievance, and this is this has to do with the competitive pressures of global integrated capitalism, with this new form of precarity capitalism. So fighting precarity becomes a radical project because precarity is caused by the core dynamic of capitalism, the competitive production of profit. Fighting this means to fight capitalism, whether you use the label capitalism or not. And I'm saying we actually do not need that label. But as long as we fight the competitive production of profit, we are uniting in one struggle, in one direction of historical movement, the winners and the losers, uh, the former class enemies. And we can do that, in fact, with rather humble measures. uh, No destruction of... uh, no need to nationalize the economy uh, to, to, for this to happen. Um, okay, uh, where do we start? We start from where the competitive, what, what generates this intensification of competitive pressures, and this is the shape of globalization. We can refashion globalization, uh, create a different globalization with very high environmental and labor standards. Um, this is, in fact, not very very difficult to do um, as long as the EU and the US, the biggest, the most powerful so far economic blocks in the world, if they embrace a model of, of uh, global market integration along the lines of uh, high labor and environmental standards, the competitive pressures would diminish. And then all the world, in order to have access to our economies, would have to adopt those standards. So this would be where I would start as a matter of emergency. Uh, And then we can do other things. Um, uh, For instance, the pandemic showed how important it is to insulate uh, research and innovation from the competitive pressure because uh, reports uh, surfaced uh, how both in the US and in Europe, uh, public authorities did not invest in the development of, um, of vaccines exactly because it was that, that was left to pharma, to, uh, to big pharma, to, um, 
uh, economic players to uh, to apply market you know market logic. So we need to insulate strategic research and development from the competitive production of profit. Um, we can create um, what in the European Union is is known as social enterprise actually uh, enterprises that are serving the needs of communities and are not for profit in the first place. They might make profit, but they're not set up to make profit. So it is the profit motive that we eliminate, not economic growth per se. Uh, So in the EU, uh, these kind of things already exist under some programs for youth employment. So these are, in fact, boring-sounding ideas But because they target the competitive production of profit, this is, in fact, very radical. And this is how we subvert capitalism from within. All right. That brings us to the end of all my questions. So as a final question for you, what, if anything, are you working on now? Um, I'm in the middle of uh, writing an article applying this, uh, this model of thinking to the protests uh, in the pandemic. Uh, It's an article called um, um, Viral Insurgencies, uh, Why Protest Now? uh, Or Can Capitalism Survive the Pandemic? Um, So um, I find that for the first time in many years, in fact, uh, the George Lloyd protests are... um, not trapped in what I just described as the paradox of emancipation. They really present a systemic uh, criticism of um, our contemporary system because they link uh, the precarity to which we are exposed with the oppressive nature of the state, which is a systemic feature. Um, So this is my current project. And I have a very big project for a book um, on the reasons for the success of the West. It is the working title is Success of the West with a question mark. Let me stop here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, excellent. So that brings us to the end of our hour. So Elbena Asmanova, thank you so much for being with us. Great pleasure. Thank you for asking me.